Welcome back to The Secret Life of Leaders, where you get unprecedented access to the inner workings of Australia's leading thinkers and practitioners at the forefront of environmental, social and governance change. The cutting edge of change can often feel lonely, but you're not alone here. The Secret Life of Leaders rehumanizes the experience of life and leadership and creates a platform for us all to learn and grow together. Let's dive in. With a focus on impactful scientific research to catalyze sustainability transitions in the agri-food system, Laurel McMillan leads a large team of researchers in the sustainability program in CSIRO's Agriculture and Food Business Unit. Laurel has contributed to national and globally significant projects in the area of complex monitoring, evaluation and learning, growing the area of sustainability-focused science while building a pipeline of new investment. She has 20 years' experience working in environmental and agricultural fields. Laurel, I've invited you onto The Secret Life of Leaders because of your results in leading complex programs of sustainability change that spans disciplines and industry domains, geographies, levels of government and communities, and I'd love to learn about your approach to leadership and share this with our listeners. Laurel McMillan, welcome to The Secret Life of Leaders. Thanks, Ant. Tell us a bit about your life and what's led you to devote yourself to sustainability change. Sure. So I'm a southeast Queensland, born and bred woman, grew up west of Brisbane, just past Ipswich, and, you know, a place with a lot of bushland. So growing up in a working class family, I think I was always intrigued by nature, always intrigued with travel and the wanting, wanting to explore the world. And perhaps because I'm from a pretty big family that I'm lucky enough to have a lot of different cultures as part of that family through marriage, I've been always been quite intrigued about meeting and working with people from different cultural backgrounds. And so actually when I left high school, I embarked on a completely different career to the one that I have now. I kicked off my kind of formal education post-high school in visual arts. And so I'm a trained visual and creative artist and worked predominantly back then with people with disabilities. And so I think that was probably my, apart from working up in, uh, growing up in a, in a working class area, I think that was probably my big, biggest exposure to social issues around equity and access and agency. And so that was a really interesting and intriguing kind of space to work. But pretty quickly, I found that securing regular employment was pretty tricky in that industry. So I took off and went traveling around the world, the, another quintessential kind of Aussie experience for some, working in you know London and, and traveling across Europe and America and Southeast Asia. And when I came back, I actually decided to embark on the career that I have now, which was going back to university and studying environmental science. So I guess that's where I tapped back into my passion around nature and having grown up with those upbringings where you'd take off at the start of the day, you'd be with your siblings and neighbourhood kids and you'd tear around bike tracks and make obstacle courses and catch yabbies in the creek and then come home with all the scars and bruises to show for the day. We also did a lot of camping as kids, so camping either in the bush or in at the ocean, and I think that that really kind of sparked my wonder of nature. I remember as a kid sitting in nature thinking, how are you, How does this all work? 
So, went back and studied environmental science and focused on microbiology, so really understanding the chemistry of water and, and elements, and also environmental policy. So, at university, I, I can actually remember the lecture where I sat there and thought, how on earth is evidence brought into policymaking? And it, I really started to get intrigued by that space of evidence-based decision-making and the way that policymakers were using research and data and evidence. So post-university, I actually went straight into a, a government job in water policy and planning and didn't last too long because, you know, I was pretty young and I wasn't getting an opportunity to really sink my teeth into the areas that I wanted to explore. So I kind of pivoted from that kind of train of employment and went to work for an environmental non-government organisation. And I think that's where I learnt about the role of advocacy and the role of community values in shaping policy. So that was a really interesting exposure to a completely different angle of the process of decision-making, if you like. Yeah, from there, I actually started my own business. So started working for a whole lot of organisations with my own business. So worked with government, worked with the NGO sector, worked with professional science organisations, but also with the private sector. So I guess with that exposure, working with the private sector then to really help them to understand the impacts of climate change on their business, how to engage in the then CSR kind of agenda, the corporate social responsibility agenda, so it's showing how long ago that was. That helped me again to understand the way that these different organisations were facing and grappling with challenges and the complexity and the operating space that they work within to try and address some of those challenges. Beautiful. So, Laurel, as a kid growing up in southeast Queensland with this quintessential Aussie experience of growing up in the bush with this environment of cultural diversity and an appetite for travel and an appetite for communicating and advocating around evidence-based decision-making, tell us how you found yourself leading a program of nearly 100 researchers, I understand, in CSIRO. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's 13 years now that I've been in CSIRO and so I've been on a bit of a journey coming into the organisation, working in the sustainable sciences kind of space back then as a communication manager actually, right through to today which is uh, moving more into the agriculture space and this nexus between agriculture, the broader food systems as we term it, agri-food systems, so this nexus between agri-food systems and all of the components incorporated in that, so climate change, how do we build a more sustainable, equitable, healthy food system and how do we grapple with all of the complexities in those systems? Mm. So, Laurel, when we're thinking about agri-food systems, what impact are you desiring to have in the world and why are you so passionate about it? I think I'm so passionate about agri-food systems because of all of the things that are so important to us. So we all eat, you know, we all need a nutritious diet, we all should have access to nutritious, healthy food. Yeah, and I think I'm personally really driven by creating a better world for the generations to come. and 
I guess, passionate about bringing people together to try and solve some of these really challenging problems that we're faced with in the agri-food system. Yes, and I imagine the people that you bring together are quite a complex mix of players across research, industry, government, other universities, and so on. Absolutely, yep. So knowing that you're playing in this space of complexity, what have been your biggest wins in deploying scientific research to solve complex sustainability problems, especially when it comes to agri-food? Yeah, okay. Gosh, there's so many wins that I think I could draw from both historically. Maybe I'll start with more recent and then maybe I'll offer a couple that jump to mind historically. So in the sustainability program in Ag and Food, we are really trying to deliver pathways and technologies that really catalyse more sustainable and more socially just transitions in the agri-food system. And so we do that through a, a number of, I guess, pathways or mechanisms of research. Maybe one of the most recent wins that I think has been pretty, pretty inspiring has been we're starting to really build capacity and momentum around our agri-food system framing and engaging nationally and at the state level and regional level around what some of those transitions might look like, how we might set directions collectively, noting that these are really contested kind of spaces, and then thinking about what's the capacity that we need to build to really solve some of these challenges and frame some of these challenges. Um, Perhaps another big win that kind of comes to mind is that, and look, I've There's so many incredible minds that I work with in this program. And recently, a couple of our researchers were working very closely with industry and they've developed a consistent common framework for greenhouse gas, agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. And why that's important is because it enables industries across the agriculture sector to both baseline the accounting for their greenhouse gases, so to understand where those greenhouse gases are coming from at the sector level, but also importantly, exploring opportunities and pathways to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions across the sector moving forward. So that's a pretty big win because it's an enabling kind of scaffolding, if you like, that helps to to build, generate, and then measure change. Importantly, the measurement piece, I think, is is, um, something that we focus on a lot. I imagine it would be important to have an agreed or at least an accepted common framework for the measurement and the baselining of that because I think it's quite often in this ESG space where those frameworks don't exist, we get this conversation about, well, you know, this framework's only measuring these things and that framework is better because it measures those things. And from the perspective of the stakeholders that we're working with, we're, you know, we're trying to integrate all of the, their values into these, into these frameworks. So I think that is a massive win. Yeah, you're right, Ange. And that is one of the key roles that science plays, right? Yeah, so I guess in these sustainability kind of science spaces, they're really contested spaces, you know, you're bringing, there's lots of values attached to different state kind of outcomes, if you like, for sustainability systems. And so the ability and the role for us as a national science organisation to build that national capability and the frameworks and metrics that can support informed actions 
and markets is actually critical. And so another example where we're doing that is um, an aspect of the national soil strategy and building a national soil information system. For some listeners, that might sound a bit boring, but actually it's really essential to be able to bring all of that information together about the state of our soils and about the health of our soils as, an, as a mechanism to be able to, for um, different stakeholders to access that soil data and information and to actually enable um, management decisions about the sustainability of our soils and to support policy making um, and land use decisions at a range of scales. Mm. I think those two examples that you've just given around an overarching framework for an agri-food system framing that sets, you know, a good, healthy, sustainable, equitable direction going into the future and capacity building to try and achieve that. And then the next example around, you know, federating or making sense and bringing together information about the health of our soils are two really key concepts, you know, when I think even just the average person thinks about how am I going to get access to healthy food into the future? So I think they're really great examples. Thank you for sharing those. Laurel, when you're thinking about sustainability change and this, you know, you've just given a few examples from the broad portfolio of work that you and your researchers are currently pursuing what are the biggest challenges that you're facing and, and what are you learning as you go? I think one of the biggest challenges is really trying to understand the, the problem space that you're working in and trying to bound it in a way that enables you to engage in that problem space. So that's a that's a that's quite hard to do. Um, we have lots of folks in CSIRO that are that are great at kind of shepherding those kind of processes. And I think that's one of the first challenges is just trying to work out which part of this puzzle can we actually tackle. Another challenge I think is understanding who to bring together to tackle elements of that system change challenge. Who are the people? What kind of organisations? What are the elements of the system that you need to nudge? You don't often get to build a project, you know, in the time frame that you want, with the people that you want, with the budget that you want. So it's kind of grappling with the practicalities of building projects, of building investments, building opportunities in this space, and really trying to configure the right team and the right kind of stakeholders and trying to co-develop what that's going to look like together to be able to nudge parts of the system that you're working in. Mm. So what I hear, and forgive me for converting what you're saying into layman's language, Laurel, it's what I do best, but the problems are, you know, the opportunities to explore and solve problems when it comes to the agri-food system are so many and broad. It's really a case of isolating where you, not only where you can make the biggest difference, but where the system requires a nudge, as you say, and then to isolate and define and bring the right people together around that specific element of the problem rather than trying to tackle something that's too broad. Mm, that's right. And really trying to know what the what the science challenge is that, that we can step into. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you explore these things and think, actually, it's probably not our role to jump into this, but other times there is a real research agenda around some of these spaces and and just defining 
what that looks like. And I guess really listening to the stakeholders, the funders, the partners around what's driving their engagement in this problem space. Mm. What is it that they want to see? What are the outcomes that they want to see here? For whom? And then sort of, I guess, working backwards to say, okay, well, what is it that we're going to be able to deliver here to, to reach those kind of outcomes? Mm. I imagine you mentioned earlier in our conversation that it's really not the role of your organisation to reconcile the values of all of those stakeholders, but quite often to develop frameworks that sit independently of some of those stakeholder values. And I imagine that's quite a tension to hold as you're formulating and delivering projects. If I can you know, reflect that more clearly, it's about, well, what do we prioritise? The independence and the robustness of the frameworks we're constructing or the stakeholder values and what they're seeking to achieve through the project. And I imagine it's it's the nuance, it's it's the tension is held, it, the answers in between the two. Yeah, it is a real nuance, Angela, and it's one that I think some folks understand quite quickly and can grasp that and other times it can be a real tension point and it takes some time to kind of understand the roles of different organisations, the roles of different partners the and, you know, our role as a national science organisation. I don't want folks to think that all we do is frameworks because, you know, I, I offered those couple of examples, but it really is the, you know, the the interrogation of trade-offs and risks and, and processes and practice that can enable those changes that we, that we work in as well. So both the technical kind of aspects, but also the system, innovation system kind of um, processes um, and practice that we bring to those spaces. Yeah, it's it's definitely there's an art to, to to bringing together system change research and development agendas that meet the needs of of all the folks that are involved. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for elaborating on that. What I'm curious about, Laurel, around this capacity building topic is I guess it's not just the impact that you have through the research outcomes and papers you produce in partnership with these stakeholders, but the effect that you have on on their knowledge and their the quality of their and the depth of their connections and the strategies that they're inspired to deploy and try purely because they've been involved in those projects. And I just wondered, you know, what your insights were around capacity building and involvement in scientific research projects. Yeah, sure. And maybe I'll reflect back on the time that I worked in Africa. So I was lucky enough to work across sub-Saharan Africa on a food security program that was funded by DFAT and CSIRO. And the purpose of that partnership was about a five-year long partnership, multi-million dollar, multi-agency, multi-partners kind of program. And the purpose of that was really to bring Australian research and development kind of insights and know-how and and skills and techniques to Africa and to work alongside African science leaders 
to really help solve some of Africa's most pressing food security challenges. And so we created a heap of projects with country partners and we co-created those together across a range of countries and, and you know, challenge spaces. I won't dig into those for the sake of time, but I think one of the lasting legacies of that partnership was really about how we embedded a focus on capacity building right from the outset. And that was through, you know, the co-creation kind of process of those projects, but also through initiatives where we set to develop both formal and sort of more informal capacity development opportunities. And so just a couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of catching up with some of my African colleagues here in Brisbane. And some of the folks there at lunch were master's students back then, or they were trying to embark on a PhD um, in Australia as part of our partnership, and are either now here in Australia working or working in their home countries and employed as early career scientists in their chosen fields. And the stories that they told of the opportunities that they capitalised on as part of those, being part of those projects or that partnership, and now working on really important agri-food kind of challenges in their home countries, be that there in their home country or here, was it was actually really touching and just so inspiring and uh, energising, I think, to see um, the kind of uh, legacy that that kind of work um, builds and the enduring nature of that. Mm. For the change leaders that I've been speaking to, just on the podcast in recent times and through my work coaching people, coaching leaders in this space, mm. I find that sometimes their energetic tank can be quite, become quite empty. They're fatigued and frustrated at slow progress. And I think this is a nice counterweight <laughs> to, to this phenomenon that we're seeing around fatigue and frustration, this idea that if we can have a bit of I think patience for open and genuine collaboration mm. in co-creation of a project, in genuine co-creation, really meeting all of the stakeholders where they are and really listening, as you say, to assess their interests and develop something in genuine togetherness rather than imposing our agenda really does open up the opportunity for capacity building. And in the short term, the relative short term that you've just described with this example of, you know, five years work in Africa and then some years later seeing how people have progressed their lives and careers based on their, their simple involvement in that project, I think is a lovely counterweight, that satisfaction to the frustration and the fatigue that we might otherwise experience. Mm, yep. All right, let's dig in a little bit closer now to your own leadership approach. Laurel, given the size of the challenges around sustainability and the breadth and scale of those challenges, how do you stay committed, passionate and inspired? Oh, that's a good question. Look, I think the inspired part is pretty easy, really. I mean, working with the incredible minds, the incredible people, the remarkable goodwill that folks come to work with in CSIRO in terms of the desire to contribute to positive change just sort of takes care of the inspiration, I think. There's not many days where I'm not feeling inspired having spoken to someone or learning about some work or building an opportunity 
with folks. So the inspiration bit, I think, comes from just the, the space that we're working in. The challenging part, you know, how do I stay engaged and, and challenged? I think it comes down to perspective, to be honest, Ange. This might be a bit of a pivot, but the other night I was listening to this insight episode and it was all around death and loss. And stick with me here because it kind of got me thinking about preparing for this podcast and, and leadership. And I think when you face death, it really makes you be committed to and feel really appreciative of life. And I got reflecting on the fact that I've been really fortunate to be very closely involved in the passing of all of my grandparents and and not being sheltered from that kind of process and that, that kind of loss and grief process. And I think what that helped me to do in those years was to really have perspective around how to do life. And so rather than get overwhelmed or bogged down in challenge, I think I'm, I don't know, somehow able to keep this perspective that how fortunate are we to be able to bring these things to the table and to contribute to to positive impact and positive change in the world. Mm, I love this combination of, you know, the, really just the appreciation of working with intelligent people and then the ability to take that perspective of the unique opportunity we have while we're here. So thank you for sharing that. Laurel, what's your approach to leading others? And specifically right now you're leading nearly 100 sustainability researchers in CSIRO, and they also need to take a personally sustainable long-term approach to making a difference through their science. How would you describe your leadership of this team? I think my leadership style is pretty authentic, actually. So it is kind of based on that authenticity. I'm pretty... I'm pretty real about the opportunities that we have, but actually the reality of the the kind of bounds within which we're working and what we need to deliver. So I'm always pretty upfront in that. And I think I'm very authentic and open about the kind of challenges or the things that I'm grappling with as well. And really uh, lean into this idea of distributed or shared leadership. So I absolutely recognize that I don't have the answers to everything and neither does anyone else. And so bringing together, you know, the minds and spirits of folks around me helps us to lead our program well, really. And that requires you to really understand what drives people and where their strengths lies so that you can think about, you know, the challenge that you're facing and think about who would be best to step into that and work with you in that space or that can take on that that area or that problem and bring their own leadership style to it. I love that. Uh, this distributed or shared leadership approach and based on the understanding that one person doesn't have all of the answers, certainly not us, has come about again and again in these podcast conversations and it just makes me curious about what you've noticed is required you know from the humans that you work with for them to get comfortable with a distributed or shared leadership approach and how you encourage people to move towards that model and stepping away from having to know the answers particularly for scientists who are sort of you know, in my experience, can tend to associate their value with how much they know. This 
this model of distributed and shared leadership kind of relies on us admitting that we don't have all of the answers. So yeah, I guess I'm curious about what you notice about, you know, your people. Yeah, sure. Well, I think the the aspects to, you know, this kind of distributed shared leadership approach is that folks need to be willing to listen to each other, right? And so really listening, not with the intent to kind of respond or to, to mark your kind of path forward, but to really understand and, and you know, throw around potential solutions or, you know, just to kind of riff off each other in terms of understanding the best way forward. And so that aspect of listening is really important. And I think trust is critical as well. So you need to be able to trust the people that you work with. And, you know, trust is a is a tricky thing to build. It takes time. But I think that mix of authenticity, of integrity, of goodwill, and of just being open to kind of grapple with these with with these tricky and complex spaces together and to share share ideas and generate sort of potential solutions together helps to really um, build that that leadership model. Mm, beautiful. Thank you for those insights. I appreciate it. Just dialing it in a little closer to what's going on in the inside world of Laurel McMillan. <laughs> What is your approach to leading yourself well and how have you focused on and improved your self-leadership over recent years? Yeah, well, I think leading yourself well is, it's a it's something you can never take your, your mind off. It's something that you need to stay focused on continually. And so I'm a single mum of an almost 10-year-old and maybe other parents listening to this can can understand, but that idea of, you know, self-care time or uninterrupted time that you get to focus on yourself can be pretty scarce sometimes as sometimes as a as a parent working full time. And so I guess one of the ways that I try and lead myself well, I'm a pretty practical kind of person. So I'm being organized is really important for me. So making sure that, you know, we're eating nutritious meals. So doing meal planning kind of sounds boring, but, um, you know, the scaffolding that kind of sets you up for for good weeks. Scheduling in exercise. So I've been trying to do more of a walk and talk meeting. So working, you know, when you're working with colleagues who you know well, you don't need to look at each other over a screen. If you're living in different parts of the country, just setting up, hey, let's do this meeting, walk and talk, so we both get a bit of exercise. Or um, I do want to play soccer on a on a Wednesday night, so you know, making sure I take the dog and I do you know an hour and a half of of laps of the field, so we're all exercising on a Wednesday evening. Mm. Just sort of practical aspects, I guess, to make sure I'm staying well, and and then also I think modelling that kind of work life balance as a leader is really important too. Tell us more about modelling work-life balance as a leader. Yeah, so I think it's important and, you know, it's certainly my style that I'm pretty open. So, you know, everyone in my program knows that I'm a single mum, that being a mum is one of the most important jobs that I have. And so I do prioritise, you know, things like I think a couple of weeks ago I took a, a call with some external partners who I had, you know, a nice strong relationship with and history with and took that meeting on the sidelines of the athletics field because it was the inter-school inter sports day or, you know, letting people know that I'm going to be in late on a Friday morning because I want to go and see my daughter perform at her assembly. So mm. just being re real about 
doing that and about the fact that if I'm working out of hours, it's because I'm, I've, you know, done something else that's been important to me in terms of other aspects of my my life and just being very supportive of folks to take have that agency as well and that responsibility to do the same. Mm. I'm curious about whether you think that sense of agency and self-responsibility around work-life balance has opened up since COVID. It's certainly been my experience, but I was wondering, you know, what your what your experience was there? Yeah, I think it has, and it's certainly, and certainly probably with, you know, the younger generations of the workforce as well, you know, folks are wanting that work-life balance. And I think that's a really important thing. We've proven that, you know, you can do a lot of things via Zoom or online and you can reduce the amount of travel that you need to do. But I think there's also a challenge in that too. Um you do need connection and particularly, you know, we've had a lot of growth in staff over the last couple of years. And when you're new to an organisation, it's really critical that you spend in-person time with people to build that connection and that trust. So, it's a bit of a, a double-sided coin, you know, two-sided, two sides of the story there that, yes, it's great and I think people are benefiting from it, but you just you do really need to keep an eye to it to make sure that that balance doesn't get out of whack and that you don't have people left behind that are new or that need that connection. Mm, great point. I think people at whatever age who are developing, you know, depth in their careers benefit from face-to-face contact and mentoring that happens when we're in an office environment and if we're not in an office environment we need to find other ways other ways for that to happen I'm thinking of you know some of your earlier career scientists and the benefits that they might have historically or traditionally had through just mere exposure to the office environment the tea room environment even and yeah the career development that was supported by those informal interactions. Believe me, I'm all for self-responsibility and agency when it comes to the way we work and working remotely, but I, I agree. I think we need to keep an eye on mentoring and career development that happens through those face-to-face interactions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How do you switch off to recharge, Laurel? And I imagine when you're tackling such big and complex problems, that are so broad with, you know, 100 people following you, there are moments when you do need to switch off and recharge. How do you manage that? Yeah, you absolutely do. I think we rise pretty early in this household, so we're, we're early birds. And so I always have quiet time in the morning where I'm not having to speak to anyone or be anything, do anything for anyone. So, you know, coffee in the garden to sort of set my my thoughts for the day. I'm also an an ocean lover, so you know there's nothing like an a swim in the ocean or a walk on the ocean walk on the beach to recharge the soul and energy levels. You know I've got, as I said earlier, I've got a really big family and beautiful friend network. So spending time with family and friends is really important. Having fun. Yeah, I guess there's some reading, you know, those kind of those kind of things. One thing that my daughter and I do, to kick off our weeks, most weeks, is that, you know, we just, we do a little check-in where I ask her, what are you excited about for the week and what are you worried about? Is there anything you're worried about? And 
and she asked me the same thing. So it's it's a nice way of kind of checking in on what's on the horizon that's that's exciting and that you can be grateful for and and be intentionally kind of present for because I think that's a really big part of leadership is that ability to be present in all of the situations that you find yourself in on a daily basis but also then for her and I to to check in on anything that's kind of you know troubling her the way to be present just through those two simple questions what are you excited about and what are you worried about I love that you mentioned a word before Laurel that not many people use in business and I'll speak for myself sometimes I can forget how to do it but you mentioned the word fun having fun (laughs) And for those people out there leading change in the environmental, social governance space or contributing to the sustainable development goals, you know, these are big, long-term, complex problems that can sometimes overtake us. And so I would love to hear from you, Laurel, about how you do have fun, just in case it inspires us as well. Well, one thing, I always take a week of school holidays off, so that's just non-negotiable for me as a parent to a small, fairly young child. And one thing that we do at the outset of that week every time is we write a list of the things, the fun things that we want to do. And then we negotiate on what we're going to, what, what it is that we're going to do. Because um, my daughter's list is usually about 50 things and mine's usually about five to 10. And so, oh, look, some of the things that we do is, you know, I think last last school holidays, we went on a train trip, a long train trip and, and had an adventure just catching up with family and friends and and doing fun things together. But I think it's also important to keep that spirit at work. So often when we kick off meetings, there's, you know, that nice banter that happens before a meeting that people are just connecting on life and things that they've been up to or achieved or things they've done on the weekend. And also scheduling in opportunities to do fun things together. That can be trickier when you've got an organisation where folks are located in different um, locations, but actually purposefully planning those and resourcing them. So resourcing for teams to get together and do some fun things, go and do a, you know, escape room or go and explore a gallery together or, you know, head out for dinner after work or something. Just being mindful that that is a really valuable activity for having fun, the celebrating wins, the celebrating each other's successes. Brilliant. Great examples. Thank you for, I love this. I love, especially thank you for this idea of the fun list. I love it. And I'm sure there might be some parents listening to this episode with the upcoming school holidays, thinking about what they'd put on their fun list with their kids. So thanks for that example. Laurel, as we begin to close out this episode, And at the end of every episode, we ask, what are the two or three most important things being required of you as a leader bringing about positive change in the world? I think first and foremost, it has to be listening. And as I said earlier, it's that listening with the intent to really deeply understand, asking really good quality questions that can spark those good quality discussions that then in turn help you and help everyone to build that kind of understanding together in whatever context. So I think listening is critical. Yeah. Uh, I think another area is really understanding what drives people and where their strengths lie. And that's important as a leader of people in an organisation, but I think it's also 
really important when you're bringing together partnerships or exploring partnerships around a, a kind of complex challenge. Understanding what drives people, what are the values underpinning, you know, that connection, where their strengths lie. Also understanding, you know, areas that they'd like to develop, of course, too. But, but yeah, really trying to just understand where people are coming from. Mm, great. And the second is related to the first in terms of, you know, listening to understand what drives people. Mm. I think finally I would say probably back yourself. Don't hold back. I think it's really easy to sit in a place of, I don't know, frustration with a situation or maybe complaining sometimes. And I guess I'm always encouraging of, of people to step in, to offer solutions-focused kind of input and to back yourself to to be able to step up and step in. Mm, I think that's great advice. Thank you, Laurel, for those insights, listening, asking really good quest- quality questions to understand what drives people. And then at some point, you have to trust what you've heard and trust what you've integrated and assimilated and trust your own judgment to back yourself, as you say. It's a great summary. Laurel, thank you for such an interesting conversation today around your leadership approach when it comes to transitioning agri-food systems from uh, where we are now to a healthier, more sustainable, more equitable space in the future. And you've been so generous with your personal leadership approaches. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ange. As a human on this planet, I am deeply interested in eating nutritious food. And I want to know that it's sustainably grown and sourced and that we have equitable access to it. What I most admire about the work that Laurel McMillan and her team at CSIRO are doing with our agri-food systems is the way that they bring co-creative, participatory, capacity-building approaches to developing and recognising and embedding good practice in our agri-food systems. I particularly enjoyed Laurel's upfront, open, honest, authentic style And I think that this is a key ingredient for promulgating trust when we're making big positive changes in the world. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Secret Life of Leaders. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We would love for you to share this podcast with friends, family or colleagues who might be interested and inspired by its content. You can follow me, Angela Koning, on LinkedIn or Instagram. And until next time, lead yourself well and everything else falls into place. <laughs>